Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Inside the Squad. We met with Chief Flanley again and continued our conversation. Uh, there's a lot of topics we covered. Um, good conversation, but we're obviously going to, once you once you hear this, you're going to see that we're going to have to have a couple more episodes to uh, dive deeper into each topic. So this is the first, well, I guess technically the second one in the series. So enjoy. fantastic so this is what are we calling this episode two yeah i think it might be episode 1.5 1.5 yeah chief 1.5 depends on what uh role he gets on today 1.5 <laughs> 1.25 so what's the uh topic of discussion whoa, whoa, whoa. hold on oh i'm sorry hold on a second what, 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 what? we we have uh something to recognize at least today because the last time we were together you weren't a sergeant that's true. And you are now. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Sergeant O'Shields. Thank you. I appreciate Sergeant that. O'Shields. Yeah. Now you, got, you got to remember that when you do the uh, the exit. That's portion true. <laughs> That's true. No, thank you. All right. Good morning, sir. Good morning. You doing right? I'm doing well. It's just the four of us today. I have uh, Patty's out. Tom's out. Tom's got a new baby. Taking care of her. Yeah, congratulations to Tom. Yeah, absolutely. I follow him on Facebook, so I've... I did not know that. I've gotten to live this experience with him. <laughs> I don't envy him. I envy him, but I don't envy him. No, nah, it'll be good. It'll be good. Yeah. Is that his first? Second. There you go. Well, congrats, Tom, when you listen to this. So, since we got all that out of the way... What is the topic of discussion, sir? Well, we were just kind of uh, going through the uh, the role of all the things that we do need to talk about. So rather than give a, a four or five hour podcast, we thought maybe we would break this up and do some more frequent podcasts here over the next few weeks and talk about some of these pressing issues that are on everyone's mind. Uh, ours included, and that is the topic of police reform. And I think much of that stems from what happened in Minneapolis and the fallout from that and cases that have uh, that have really come to light since then. And I think in the end, uh, we you know, we don't need to spend a lot of time, I, I think, talking about the uh, the Minneapolis case itself, because I think everyone has seen that. Uh, there are a few things I think it would be important to touch on, but uh, I think what it has highlighted is around the country the need for law enforcement to do a better job of educating our communities and the public about what we what we do every day and how we train and the level of, level of professionalism that we do have in our police departments. And sometimes I think that gets lost in the noise and about how progressive most police departments really are and the training that they do. And it's, but it's, it, these are topics that you're not going to learn, uh, in a Twitter war, you know, in a Twitter exchange or even on post on Facebook. These are, these are topics that require, uh, significant amount of time to invest in to really truly understand all of the nuances and uh, good or bad i think that's that's the reality of where we are so i thought today we could talk about some of the things especially for our own community that i that hopefully will answer some of the questions maybe it'll raise more but i think for us you know that's where we can start is is from a place of education and I think maybe there's no better place to start than what we're doing right here, right? Mm -hmm. Podcast. And if we if we go back and and uh, rewind the clock a few years, uh, we're and, you know quite frankly, I, you know, I'm in my eighth year as chief, going on nine years, and 
Yeah, in that time, we've made a lot of changes at the PD, one of which is a significant investment in our community outreach, crime prevention community outreach. And some of this was in uh, just in response to this same question is how do we educate the public on all the things that we really are doing every day? Because the public's opinion about what we do for the most part is formed by the media. It's not, it doesn't come from us. It comes from what they see on the news, what they read in the newspaper, what they uh, see in popular movies and television shows. And that, that amalgamation of information really creates this uh, perception about what law enforcement really is. And that's... It's not accurate. No. Well, and I think what... You, what you have is a, a lot of agent, a lot of law enforcement agencies throughout the country are allowing that medium to drive the conversation, um, and they're just a spectator. They're not actively engaged as much as they probably should be with that education piece and the conversation that they're having with the community and explaining to them why they do the things that they do, how they train. Um, you know, that's important, and if you're not doing that right now, um, that's a big problem. Well, and again, it takes time. And we, you know, we started our Citizens Academy uh, almost 25 years ago. Hard to believe, but it's been almost 25 years that we've been doing that. And it's one of my favorite things to do as a chief because we get the opportunity in a long format to educate people on all the things that we do. And again, I know we've talked about this in the past, but that's an opportunity that we would really like for people to participate in. Now, with COVID, I'm not sure what's going to happen. We might have to we might have to think about doing things a little bit differently this year in terms of how we put out our Citizens Academy. Maybe we do something online, yeah. uh, maybe something a little bit more interactive. Uh, but it's you know that's an investment. That's we've varied that class anywhere from six weeks to ten weeks. Uh, I think we're down to eight weeks now, and we do it for three hours, one night a week. So that's a it's a minimum of a 24-hour commitment in the classroom, and then we, we really encourage people to participate in the ride-alongs. And we do a few ride-alongs for everyone because that's the opportunity to get out into the car and really feel the experience. And it's one thing to see police work. It's another thing to experience it. And that is, uh, the, the, you know, to me, that, that, that's, that's probably the most important community uh, outreach event that that we put on and again that takes a require you know it takes an investment on someone's on someone's part to come down and participate in that and at the beginning I tell all of our participants we're looking for feedback you know we're we're not looking for a pat on the back to tell us hey great job you're you know you're doing a, a difficult job thank you um, those are all nice but what we're looking for is feedback you know, tell us what you think. What are what were your experiences? What did you think at the beginning of this program, and now that you've been through it, um, what is your perception now of of the job, and and how are we doing it? And and we we get some good feedback from it, but what that does is that changes people's perspective, and that's the most important thing that we need to do. So today, uh, I thought, you know, in the uh, I, I would. I figure I'd just give a couple of thoughts on Minneapolis, and then we'll we'll go into uh, some of our uh, a document that we produced to help educate. Again, uh, it's it's a shorter format, but I think we we did it in a way that can really highlight some of the the more pressing concerns that people in the community have uh, in terms of of how we do police here in Lafayette. So. Uh, I'll start right with this. Uh, some of these campaigns that we've seen, because in in post big events like this that make national news, uh, you know, there's organizations, you know, the reform organizations, and others. They'll they create canned letters, and then they send them out on social media or other platforms, and then people in communities grab them. They put their name on them. Uh, they might change a few words here and there, but then they email them into. Uh, city leaders and others, um, and I get a lot of these at times. And um, so sometimes we see the same letter with different names on it that's basically the same letter with a few different statistics or 
or, or questions on there. One of them, uh, one of the documents that was circulating was called Eight Can't Wait. And I, I received this uh, from from a couple different people. And, and so I figured we could kind of go through some of these things. And the first one on there is, is to ban chokeholds and strangleholds. And so that takes us back to Minneapolis. This is a response to what happened in Minneapolis. There's also a case in New York City, Eric Garner, where um, uh, he he passed away after after receiving a a, a version of a chokehold uh, when he was resisting arrest. I you know it doesn't really take an expert. You don't have to be a police officer to watch what happened in Minneapolis and, and recognize that it was wrong. And, uh, you know, my, my first reaction when I, when I watched that was, you know, a few explicatives came out of my mouth when I just watched that guy sit there and, uh, not move and kept his, kept his knee on, uh, on George Floyd's neck. And, um, None of the officers there acted uh, to to pull him off, or what we would, you know, I personally refer to that as the doom loop, you know, for officers. And um, yeah, and, you know, the end result was positional asphyxia and strangulation. So I'll ask you guys this question: I mean, is positional asphyxia anything that's new to? No, you? We, no, we not train new. all the time. For years uh, to, you know, once you affect an arrest, if somebody's on the ground, we get them in a sitting or standing position to get them off their chest. So that's, yeah. So um, in this, in this case, I, I were, it, it, yeah, yeah, it was just, it was just sad to see that because there so many things were wrong with it. Um and you know we could we could spend a lot of time discussing why we think that happened, or maybe where some of the breakdowns are, um, but maybe we'll come back to that. But in terms of banning chokeholds and strangleholds, uh, we've gotten pressure from uh, community activists or just citizens to say we need to create a policy that bans chokeholds. You can never use them. And some have gone so far as to say that if a police officer does use them, then they they would be uh, fired and subject to prosecution. So uh, I'll just start off by saying we don't train chokeholds at LPD. We haven't uh, for a long time, um, really not even in my in I'm 25 years in. Um, but we do train to defeat the chokehold, and that's important. I think there's an important distinction there. The reason we don't train chokeholds is because it's a it's a it's a technical move, um, and they they are fairly effective. They're, a matter of fact, they're very effective if they're done appropriately. Yes. Um, the problem is is that it does take a high level of skill and it takes a lot of hours to train it to get to a level of proficiency where you can do that without some of the risks that are associated with chokeholds and one of the greatest risks of a, a associated with chokehold is death and you know the it's the, you know we're not on a jiu-jitsu mat and we're not in a wrestling room there's no referee uh, in our fights um and, and so having someone there that can monitor how, you know, how that's being applied and if it's being applied appropriately and if there's going to be uh, some uh, unintended consequences from a, a poorly executed chokehold, um, you know, we all know what the consequences of that could be. So do we ban chokeholds? Well, if you put that in policy, we talk about this a lot. Always and never are two very dangerous words to enter into anyone's vernacular because there are always exceptions. Um, you know, you, we, it's easy to say always and never and that I would do that. But until you're in a situation uh, where your life may depend on it, 
Well, then always and never, you probably don't want that in there. And so we don't, you know, we're not going to say you can never use a chokehold uh, because the ch- a chokehold might be the only thing that can save an officer's life. Or or a, somebody else's life. Or right? somebody else's <clears throat> life. And uh, that somebody else might actually be the person that we're fighting with. And a lot of times people don't, they fail to recognize, um, you know, fights, fights are not initiated by police officers. And that's, again, we don't even use the term use of force at LPD. Our, our policy is called response to resistance. And that's very intentional. And it's because our job sometimes requires us to take people into custody for violating the law. And it's a citizen's responsibility and a citizen's duty to acknowledge that authority, to accept that authority, and to surrender themselves to arrest. Um, so that's another important component to all of this that I want people to realize is that we don't fight anybody until they resist. So our response is aggregate to their level of resistance. And we do it in a way that hopefully we can end any resistance quickly and safely for everybody involved. Yeah, the, the fight isn't to beat someone up or try to hurt them or try to, you know, the, the goal is to affect that arrest, right? Get them in hang up and handcuffs and, uh, as safely as quickly as possible. You know what I mean? So to use the word fight, I think a lot of people think like, Oh, you fight and you beat people up. Right. Uh, well, you see that on TV a lot, right? You do. Yep. But I'm saying like our goal isn't to, you know, normally when you see fights, it's I'm fighting someone to beat them up to, so they're, you know, they're done. I'm going to beat them up. You know, our fight isn't to beat someone up. It's to place them under arrest, to get those handcuffs on and stop the the uh, resistance, right? So we can, you know, safely get them into the squad and into jail for the, the charges. So. so let me ask you guys this a question. Is that easy? No. No. It looks but they make it look so easy on television. They do. Well, and there's just so many different. I mean, our job is mostly reactive, right? I mean, I have no clue. You know, I've been there many, many times myself. On the street, you go to place somebody under arrest, and, and most of the time, I will say, I could tell when somebody was getting ready to resist. Like I had that. You have that feeling, right? I, I joke and called that spidey sense. Like I, I could tell. Like this isn't gonna go well. Um, but what they were going to do, I didn't know, you know, were they going to just pull away and run? Were they going to turn around and square up and and actually try to fight? Were they going to pull out a weapon? I mean, you just, you don't know. And I think that's why I get so frustrated when I watch these videos and I see people's responses because you, you can't really, you, you can't Monday night quarterback an officer's decisions because they're making it just like that. I mean, we're literally reacting to whatever that 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 uh, suspect is is throwing at us, you know, in a split second. And I'm not saying we always make the best decisions, uh, but uh, it's it's very easy to sit back and be like, oh, I would have done this. Well, would you? Would would you have? You know. And so that's why I think it's good, like you talked about, uh, coming to these Citizens Academy and putting people in those situations. And we kind of do that, right? Not to take this off point, but. We put them in in firearms simulator to where they get a little taste. Now, granted, it's just a simulator. Nothing's actually going to hit them. They're not going to get hurt. But we're able to get that stress level up a little bit and have them make that split-second decision. And there's most people are like, oh, wow. You know, I just – I didn't realize how stressful it would be or, you know, what my reaction would be. And uh, so imagine, you know, doing that in real life and – and that, there's just so much to it. I guess I apologize. No, but there's just so yeah. many elements to it. it uh, even I, when I see a situation, you know, I don't want to use the George Floyd one, but when I see one where actually the there is resistance from the suspect, right, and I see a cop do something, and, and even though I may not, you look at it and you're like, ooh, 
I don't want a Monday night quarterback because I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know what he was feeling. I didn't know what information he had beforehand or in the moment. And, you know, I didn't know what the, the suspect said or did. And so it's very – I, even as a police officer, try not to have an opinion on a situation merely because I wasn't there. Well, you know? and, I, and I think what you're talking about is something that I think it's important that we discuss. And we talk about it in the Citizens Academy as well, that – most the, the general public just doesn't understand that we are our own worst critics, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and we're constantly doing that self-evaluation uh, after an incident to, you know, what could we have done differently? How could this have gone better? What can I improve upon? And, and I think that's, that's missing in the conversation right now because I, I don't think that, you know, going back to the, the chief's point earlier that, you know, you know about how most departments are very progressive with – how they're training, um, and that's that's just part of it. And in my entire career here at LPD, that's how we've done it. You know, you've you've constantly done the the scenario training, that mental scenario training in your head prior to and after. But you know, the the other part of it too is, and we and we and we do go over this in the Citizens Academy is you know you you show video and then stop. And then ask them what they would do mm -hmm. and then play that forward and then give them opportunities to kind of – and that gets them thinking and it gets them understanding the thought process for a police officer and how quick that happens, how quickly you have to make that decision. And then you're right when they get into the, sim, the simulator room and the other things that they get a chance to experience that for themselves and they go, wow, yeah, I, I get that now. I under, or, or at least I understand it a little bit better. Yeah, and, and – I almost wish we would have started with because de-escalation is on there, right? And that one of the eight. Yeah, I wish we would have started. That was the part. Well, I wish we would have started with that merely because I, I don't think people realize that's actually what that's our go-to. Like that's the first thing we attempt, right? Our goal isn't to have to fight someone; it is to to quiet, you know, to to take them or uh, place them under arrest. No one gets hurt. There's no incident. It's, hey, you know, this is what happened. This is what you're being charged with. You're under arrest. We put them in handcuffs, and they're transported to the jail. I mean, that's that's really what we're ultimately trying to do. And we do, and again, I've been there many times. My partner's many, many times, and will continue to be. But we try to talk that, that person down. Hey, you know, don't fight. Don't resist. Um, that is the ultimate goal. So, you know, people go straight to, oh, the police want to fight. No, we tried to de-escalate as much as possible and actually more than probably what we really need to, right? I mean, is that a fair thing to say? Like, we I think it's use very fair to say. And, you know, quite frankly, some of, the, some of the unintended consequences of the pressure on law enforcement to de-escalate and to um, take extreme measures – I think what also people fail to realize is that the officers are the ones that are in peril. Yeah. They're the ones that it's their life that's on the line. And de-escalation, while it's always our number one goal, it's always our primary responsibility is to try to de-escalate as quickly as possible. What people sometimes fail to understand is because we've got more invested in this than anybody. It's it's our safety that's on the line and those that are around. And who gets hurt most frequently in fights? Is it suspects or is it police officers? They're the officers. It, um, you know, broken fingers, torn rotator cuffs, um, twisted knees, knees yeah. you know, bumps, bruises. Uh, yeah, we definitely want to de-escalate. That's, you know, and so we do require de-escalation training. We Blood do. exposure. I think that's a big one. Um, exposure just to being expo in, in, the, in these COVID times. The last thing any officer wants to do is really get up face to face with somebody if they really, really don't have to, because um, what you know what we get at the at work is also what we take home, um, and th yeah, that can be uh, exposure to all kinds of things: hepatitis, um, HIV, COVID. Uh, Fill in the blank. I mean, that's why we do have we have manda uh, mandated training every year on how to protect ourselves from bloodborne pathogens, and and so we do require de-escalation. Uh, we train it. Uh, it, it is our go-to. Um, but a couple of the others that that drop right in line with this are 
um, establish a use of force continuum, which we've we've always, you know, ba our response to resistance is based off of uh, suspects' actions, and um, our policy has been built around that. Um, Can I say one thing before we push forward? Is uh, and I think this is one of my biggest frustrations too. What? I don't know the percentage. I hate when people throw percentages out because you can tweak those any way you want. But most of our interactions is because we're called to deal with whoever, right? It's not because we're, you know, I see you walking down the street. Most of our interactions are, hey, we're getting called because of this incident. We're getting called because of the domestic or whatever. Uh, and, you know, we we train in all these tactics, de-escalation, and, and then if we have to use force beyond that, right, we have to make these decisions. But really all of that could be avoided is if I, – I don't want to necessarily use the word surrender, but if people – if charges are there, if probable cause is there to arrest somebody, that they surrender to that arrest, right? Don't try to hold court in the middle of the street and and try to fight and argue against it because if we know that probable cause exists and we have that and you're going to go to jail – we're going to do what we need to do to, to place you under arrest. Right. And so in my eyes, most, you know, try to not use always and never most of these situations of use of force could completely be avoided. If, uh, accountability on the side of the suspect, if they just didn't fight, if they didn't resist, you know, and I think that needs to be said because I, 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 it's always pointed at us. Well, at least from, you know, what you're seeing in the media, they're fighting this and the other, but if, if you obey the law, first off, we're not going to probably deal with you anyways. And if we do happen to come across you because you're at the wrong place at the wrong time and we're looking for, you know, the Chiefs wearing a green polo today and I'm looking for a guy wearing a green polo and he has nothing to do with it and he just happens to be walking by, we're going to figure that out. If you're cooperative and you're like, hey, you know, I was over here get my coffee and you know, I have no clue what you're talking about. We're, we're going to figure that out. We got this job for a reason, right? Our, our people have common sense. They're smart. They're going to they're going to figure out that. Hey, yep, you're not the guy I'm looking for, and send you on your way. We might take up a few minutes of your time, right? You may even get placed in handcuffs, but we're going to figure out not the guy we're looking for. The handcuffs come off, and we send you on your way. Um, but I think that's important to say, and 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 that. If, if people are just cooperative and uh, they don't fight and they don't or if they obey the law, then there is no use of force that's going to happen. Is that anybody want to? I mean, no, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. But we could also spend an entire, you know, hour talking about the reasons why. Mm. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I'm just saying that an hour. Yeah, I guess sure. I'm just trying to drive home the point that, like the chief said, we're not actively trying to fight somebody. It is our response to their resistance. But if there's no resistance, then there's no fight. There's no injury. There's no death, right? All right. So, so we do train in de-escalation. <laughs> uh, we do use a use of force continuum. We always have. Um, uh, the other one, um, you know, exhaust all alternatives before shooting or, or require a, a warning shot before shooting. Again, require uh, – now, I – I think maybe what they're intending in there is that, you know, the police give some type of warning before they shoot. But again, we, we will not require anyone to give a warning before they have to use deadly force. And um, I would say that's, you know, th that I think the average person w applying a little bit of common sense to this, you know, with a little bit of, you know, try to. Be neutral and detached, and understand why that might be problematic for the police. Is that uh, people don't always give us a warning? Uh, yeah, I'll go out on, on YouTube them. and and look at all the police officers who've been ambushed and who've been shot without any warning. Yeah, I, I will go out on a limb and say eighty percent of the public understands that, in my opinion. But I would hope it's more. But in any case, we do know, uh, and I, I think. Just to put people at ease, if they if they do have concerns about this, the last thing any officer wants to do is have to shoot somebody. It is the last thing. Uh, and I'll go back to our continuum and our de-escalation. And 
uh, again, if you if you put rules on top of an officer that they cannot follow, then you're just asking them to break policy, and so that's that's bad policy. If you if you set, we call that the fundamental attribution error, right? Is that we place a system on somebody that's so restrictive or that's incorrect. And then when somebody operating within that system uh, breaks the rules or goes outside of it, then we blame them rather than the rule or the system that was set up in the first place. So that's why we have to we have to look at policy and we have to and you have to understand why and we can talk about some of these things in a longer podcast and we can go through them point by point but the general the general observation for today is that we it takes almost a year at a minimum at a minimum to get a person trained up to the point where we feel confident that we can put them out on patrol by themselves a year. Um, one to three years, they're still going to be closely supervised. They may be you know, in a less restrictive training environment. They may be on solo patrol, but supervisors are trying to keep a close eye on them and what they're doing. Three to seven years typically is where we know that People are, you know, officers are kind of starting to hit their groove. They've seen enough. They've got enough experience where they're they're highly confident uh, in addition to being highly competent. You know, we, we can train people to competence. It's difficult to train confidence uh, when you've never experienced something. And again, this is what if, you know, if people take nothing away from this podcast except this. This is what I want them to know. Uh, you know, we have very good police officers on our police department and we are very, very selective on who we hire. We go through a, a, a an exhaustive process. Over 90% of our applicants are screened out. They don't make it here. Um, so this bad cop argument, um, is another one of those things that really concerns me a little bit because we hear it tossed around all the time. Oh, it's, it's the bad cops. Well, I'm, I, I'm not going to speak for other agencies, but we don't hire bad cops and we don't keep bad cops. And the ones that we do have, uh, we train them very well, but we're putting them out into extremely difficult circumstances. It is a very, very tough job. Most of it is mundane um, and it's repetitive, but there are times, uh, this is not a hypothetical, it's not a what if, there will be times when every single one of our police officers are faced with life and death decisions. Not only, the, not only for their own life, but for the people that they're dealing with. And that's what we put them out there for. That's what we train them for. Uh, these decisions, it, it's very, I have, it, it concerns me greatly when people take positions, especially people that that are in positions of authority and those that have decision-making responsibility for what the police can and can't do, when they try to create rules without understanding the job, and you don't get an understanding by watching Blue Bloods um, or cops for that matter, it's a dangerous job. It's not a hypothetical there are real knives involved. There are real bullets involved. Um, there are incredibly dangerous people that are aggressive, that the only thing that they really care about is getting away in the moment. Mm -hmm. Not, I'm not even going to say they're bad people, uh, but they're, they make really bad decisions when they're in fear for their freedom and their safety. Maybe they are bad people, but the last thing a police officer ever wants to do is go to work and have to shoot somebody uh, or have to kill somebody. Um, but we require them to be prepared to do so and to protect their own lives. And that that's just a hard thing, I think, for sometimes for people to truly grasp is that this is a job requirement. 
And that's why we are so intensive in our screening process. The hiring, we, we've talked about hiring on this podcast in the past, right? We have. And I, I, would, I would encourage people to go back and listen to that podcast to talk about all the things that we do um, to, get to, the, to get to a position where, uh, where they are. It, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. And we can talk about, again, in another podcast, the impacts on the impact hiring. this is having yeah. on, on our on our recruiting and our recruitment and retention. Well, it's not good. I yeah, because that's that's gotta, real. That's real. And it deserves some serious discussion. And that's not being so we just right started now. an application process. We did. 20 percent are left. Correct. And it just started. Yeah, and that just involved the written exam and, and the, the physical, physical fitness. Physical fitness. And 20% are left. And so right there, it just shows you, you know, right in the beginning, you know, how many we uh, we lose just to those two okay. parts of the process. Yeah, and that that is, that's really concerning. It, it That should concern everybody. Um all right. Well, we're a couple a couple of the other these things um, require all force to be reported. Well, Captain Phillips, why don't you fill us in on that since this is right up your alley? Yeah, I mean it, that's a requirement for us. Uh, whether it's the uh, you know a taser deployment, a uh, soft hand, a hard hand, uh, the pointing of a firearm, and not the discharge, but just the pointing of a firearm. All uses of forces within the department are required to be reported. Those are documented and those are tracked. So why, why would we uh, track when we point a firearm at somebody? Well, that's an opportunity uh, for us to not only take a look at you know the the just the pointing of that firearm and what deterrent that may or may not have, but that's something that we implemented maybe six, seven years back, maybe eight years ago, maybe not quite that long that we that we started to track that. I think it shows how many times we also don't, point the firearm and we don't shoot someone. Right. Which is? Probably 99 point, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we can... We can go back and we can and we can show that data, the amount of restraint that we do have, uh, and and that comes with training and that comes with selection, quite frankly. So, yeah. that's an entire other podcast as well. So, uh, in addition, in addition to the uh, all recourse, uh, all use of force is being reported. That, that uh, if there's report, if there's a use of force on scene. Uh, a supervisor in almost every case will make the scene. They'll do a, uh, an investigation on scene about what force was used and why. Uh, officers have to document it. Of course, we have body cameras, and that, that leads to a whole other uh, avenue of, of documentation for us as well. But that, that review process is tiered, and it goes all the way to um, the, the chief's office on, on use of force. So it's reviewed by the shift, the shift sergeants, reviewed by the shift lieutenant, and then it goes to our administrative services where it's reviewed. And then we also have uh, use of force experts that, in, uh, that we can also bring in to review cases as well, especially those if, um, if that are uh, more of a, I guess, more of a serious nature. Um, anything that requires like hard hands or where if somebody's injured or something like that. Um, can, can I, I just wanted to add something too. You know, you hear a lot of, well, why is he pointing a gun at him? Why is he doing that? You know, that goes back to, you know, because you talked about we, we document when we point a firearm. Again, a lot of our response is based on information we, we've been given or previous information, you know, knowledge of who we're dealing with. And so when you see those videos of an officer pointing a gun at somebody who doesn't have a gun in their hand, right, or a weapon in their hand, you can't Monday night quarterback, oh, they're just pointing at an unarmed person. Again, what information was, was given? You know, did that suspect, was he reportedly uh, just robbed somebody at gunpoint? Did, you know, you, you need all the information before you uh, make an opinion on a situation. And just know that we, again, are reacting to 
the bad guys uh, or the suspect, whatever you want to call them in that moment, uh, what they are doing. And so we do use great restraint. We may have that gun out, but it doesn't mean we're going to pull the trigger. But if I have information that suspect has a gun, I'm going to have my gun out just in case they do pull, uh, uh, pull out a weapon. And I think a good example of that is his officer that just lost his life in Toledo, right? Going to an intoxicated subject. Yeah. You see that you would see the potential call right there. Hey, you're going to a guy who's drunk in a parking lot. And all of a sudden now he has a gun and now the, the officer shot. Right. And so again, we're always reacting to other people and, and we may have that weapon out, but it doesn't mean we're actually going to use it. Yeah. And those are decisions based on what they're based on the totality of the circumstances, Correct. right? Yeah. Which is, which is what we teach, which is what I think most agencies throughout the country teach. And that's not captured in a video. No, it is not. It, but it, but again, it goes back to those things. And, and, you know, part of what we do, I think as an agency with our, our outreach program, especially with the citizens Academy, I know we're talking a lot about that today, but those are opportunities that we get a chance to show them and then stop it and then have a discussion about it. You know, what do you see here? Everyone's going to see something a little bit different. Well, did you see this? Oh, I didn't see that. Well, that's why that officer is pointing their gun at them. Like you said, they, they may not see a weapon that's, that's readily visible, but the officer does. So here's absolutely. And here's what, uh, if for those listening, you know, if you have somebody that doesn't agree with the police, doesn't like the police, you know, honestly, those are the people that I want to see come to Citizens Academy. Those are the people that I want to have sit and have a discussion with. I know there's good people that come to the Citizens Academy and I greatly appreciate it. Um, you know, but most times just in all honesty, it's people that support us already. Right. And they, they just want to deeper dive into what we do. You know, here's an invite to those who don't understand, but have a strong opinion of what we do. Come to our Citizens Academy. Reach out to me. You know, I'll love to sit down and have a conversation with you. Um, you know, just don't assume based off all the things the chief was talking about, movies and the short clips that you see or the few horrible instances that do occur like Minneapolis. That isn't the majority. So, you know, here, here's your invite. Here's your invite. Spread the word that we have plenty of outreach events. We have plenty of ways that you can contact us. And, and come and see what we truly do. And, you know, once you have more inf information, if you still feel that way, then then so be it. But I honestly and I truly think that uh, your your mindset would change. And so. Well, I think one, you, you mentioned the word that it's also, I think, the key word there. And it's it, that we're reacting to uh, suspects actions. Um, and that's always going to be the case. We're always going to be reacting. And, and quite frankly, in, in our response to resistance, the one of the key terms that, w that we train on is called a reactionary gap. And the reactionary gap is that time between when a person sees something happening and for their brain to be able to process uh, what, it, what it is that they're seeing and then formulate a response to that. Um, and that's all that can happen in literally in, in hundreds of a second. That's how fast things can change. Uh, typically, you know, reactionary gaps can be anywhere from, from one to three seconds. Uh, and one second is the difference between life and death. And yeah. That's, that's and what people an don't understand is a suspect has already made up their mind as to what they're going to do. So yes. when you're reacting to that, the, the advantage is theirs automatically theirs when they've I said, already decided what they're going to do so now you're reacting to that and that's why you know so sometimes one of the things that people always uh, I, you know common criticism of the police is that they're they're not friendly uh you know they're taking offensive postures or they uh they seem like they're on high alert well, i'm just a nice person and i didn't have anything to do uh, you know i don't understand why the officer had to act that way and you know these are things again that we that we try to train on, and then we try to get people to understand that you will see, uh, hopefully, a level of 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 changed response once an officer has a, a a higher level of situational awareness. But that's really what it comes down to. So you have to start uh, calls from an elevated position of uh, of awareness, heightened state of awareness, gather information make good decisions based 
from from what you learn as you go. And even then, uh, we can see where things can we can can turn wrong, and you know it can go bad in an instant. Uh, the Atlanta case is a perfect example of that. Um, and I do want to talk more about that, maybe some compare and contrast in those. But um, for today, I think you know, we're uh, I kind of wanted to wrap things up by just talking about what we've covered on on this. It, and hopefully, we've covered everything in a way that that, that people understand it. That um, we don't we don't teach choke holds, but we do teach our officers how to break them because um, we've been in those fights and. Uh, this is again. It's not. This is not a wrestling mat or a jujitsu tournament. This is uh, life or death on the street. Uh, we do train in de-escalation. Uh, we have for years. Uh, nothing new. Um, you know, we don't require a warning shot, but you know, of course, shooting is always going to be the last resort when no other alternative is there. Um, case law guides that. Uh, Supreme Court decisions. Uh, that have been vetted over generations, they set all of our policies. And that's, again, another thing that um, I want people to understand is that our rules, they're just not arbitrary. You know, they're based on uh, what has happened in society and what has been argued and what's been argued extensively. Uh, so cases like Tennessee versus Garner and uh, all the other cases that dictate, you know, our use of force, uh, it's it's a it's a well vetted process. Uh, we do document every single case of uh, when force is used. Um, we've used a force continuum for three decades. Um, we again we're not going to ban moving at shooting vehicles, uh, but we train techniques to not have to do that um, because it's just it's it's too dangerous for everybody. Uh, and so, again, that's kind of a last resort type of, of uh, alternative in cases where, you know, sometimes you might have to. And, I, you know, and here's a quick example. We, we've seen now time and time again, sadly, where domestic terrorists have uh, or international terrorists have driven vehicles into crowds of people. So if you don't have a barrier or if there is a barrier and there are people at risk, would you rather an officer not shoot into that vehicle and let them drive into the crowd? Or would you like, you know, would you want them to take some action to try to prevent that from happening? It's not, the, it's, it's very difficult uh, to do, but that's, that's again, another reason it's, that's just a quick example of why you don't want to ban that from happening. Because in, in that case, you know, if, if you do have something like that where an officer does wind up having to shoot into a moving vehicle and, and they injure someone that they didn't intend to injure, you know, they're, you know they're, they take the responsibility for that. And uh, so I think we've covered most of those. So we've just spent a good 45 minutes just talking about at a very, very high level about the use of force. So, you know. Again, officers are going to do whatever they have to do, uh, whatever is necessary to protect lives. And every force, no matter the severity, is documented. It's reviewed to make sure that all of our training and all of our policies are followed. And I'll touch again. We've talked about body cams in the past, but I'm going to touch on this briefly again. We do have body cameras, and they document what the camera sees. But what a body camera does not capture is an officer's use of training and experience, their intuition, uh, the knowledge of what they see outside of what the camera might be capturing, because the camera is just a camera. Um, and we don't look at the camera as just a way to, to capture evidence. For us, it's an opportunity to have a holistic approach to see how we're doing their job, how people are responding to us, um, what can we do better? Uh, how, how do we evaluate um, our response to every type of call, not, not just those that involve force? But everybody behaves differently when they know that they're being recorded, uh, police officers included. Everybody behaves differently. Um, so that's why you will see a significant reduction in the number of use of forces. It's not because an officer is changing behavior. It's because... Uh, people that they encounter also know that they're being recorded. 
you'll see a significant uh, reduction in the number of complaints against police departments when cameras are used. Not because police officers change their behavior, but because people know they can't lie and make a false complaint against the police department uh, or the police officers. Um, it's, you know, police officers have, you know, have, have wanted body cameras. Uh, they've accepted them with open arms um, because it, it's a tool that documents the great job that they know that they're already doing and it protects them in situations where people that we're dealing with every day who are not accountable to any rules or laws that are breaking the laws that will do anything they can to avoid uh, having to accept the consequences for their actions. So they try, it's kind of like the little kid that they point the finger at everybody else, um, try to blame everybody else for their own actions rather than just accepting the consequences. So can either of you touch on complaints real quick? Cause I know that's something that you hear in the media. Oh, this officer had 15 complaints on him. Okay. Well, I think we need to save that for another day. Um, that's fine. Go. <laughs> oh, he's got he's got meetings. All right, well, then we'll save that for uh, the next session. Yeah, and, and I think you know just for those listening to kind of give a little insight into upcoming podcasts and the different topics that you know that we would like to get into. Obviously, qualified immunity is one. Uh, morale and law enforcement. We can we can get into you know complaints. The impact of body worn cameras on complaints of police officers and 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 you know what what the statistics show with that, and then I think it's important we can talk about uh, the hiring process too and the impact that a lot of these things that we're seeing are having an impact on agencies throughout the country. Qual you know recruiting qualified applicants. No, absolutely. All right. Well, then we'll. Uh We'll end it there. The chief had to had to go. He has a meeting, but uh, we'll get together next week and start on the next topic. But maybe we can start with complaints because I think it definitely needs to be discussed. Absolutely. All right, you gentlemen, have a good day. Everybody else, do the same. This has been Inside the Squad, a podcast from the Lafayette Police Department in Lafayette, Indiana. Inside the Squad is a community outreach podcast and is hosted by Sergeant Ian O'Shields and Captain Brian Phillips of the Crime Prevention Unit within the department. Production assistance is provided by the City of Lafayette IT Department. You can email us show ideas or questions at podcast at lafayette.in.gov. And don't forget to join us on Instagram, Twitter, Nixle, or Nextdoor. Until next time, thanks for listening.